Hello and welcome to the Leading in Times of Challenge podcast produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. I'm your host, Mike Jefferson. Thank you for joining us as we talk with community leaders from across Greater Des Moines who share their greatest accomplishments and their biggest challenges. Now more than ever during these trying times, leadership remains crucial to the strength and resilience of our region. Let's hear from today's leader. I'd like to welcome all of you again to another episode of the Leading in Times Challenge podcast. Uh, for those of you that are just listening for the first time, welcome. And I'd also like to invite you to check out prior episodes of the podcast. You can do that by going to dsmpartnership.com and clicking on the podcast link. Today's guest has a pretty impressive resume, and, and I'm going to let her get into that here in a little bit. But she uh, she's very passionate about the community. Uh, she has a, a particular focus on the use of partnerships across many areas, including philanthropic, private, uh, public sector. Uh, she seeks to connect people to resources and promote collective action and definitely ensure inclusive growth. She holds a Master of International Affairs from Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs with a focus on ep- economic and political development. So as of October of last year, she was named as the Director of Principal Community Relations and the Principal Financial Group Foundation Incorporated. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome to the podcast today, Joe Christine Miles. Joe, thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for reaching out and giving me an opportunity uh, to speak to you and your audience. So we hit it off well. I already knew this was going to be a fun conversation when we were starting to get to know each other. You, uh, you got me with a little joke. And so I actually, I appreciate that because... Uh, it definitely helps us set the the tone for for our discussion today. So uh, again, thank you for that. But uh, Joe, Christine, if you wouldn't mind just uh, sharing um, anything about yourself that I may not have covered in the initial introduction. Uh, I guess I'd have to mention that uh, philanthropy is a second career for me. Um, I spent the first 15 plus years of my uh, professional life as an attorney. I practiced corporate restructuring law at a large international law firm in New York. Um, that firm is called Denton's. It now, I believe, has the designation of being the largest law firm in the world. Uh, I'm still sorting out whether that's a good thing or, or a bad thing. And for all the lawyers who may be listening, I think they might understand why I would question that. Um, so, yeah, as a corporate restructuring lawyer, um, I uh, had the pleasure of advising and supporting corporations who were going through um, a restructuring. That's usually a financial restructuring that has implications for all of its stakeholders. Um, and in that, leading teams of attorneys and other professionals that could be consultants, um, investment bankers, um, all of us moving together in the same direction to get this company to where it needs to be. Um, and uh, really, it was that work of connecting corporations to uh, the resources that they needed that led me into a career uh, in philanthropy, appreciating that not everyone, not every community has uh, the ability to connect with that type of professional assistance, but could, of course, uh, advance their goals much faster and, and efficiently if they did have access to that type of professional help. Very good. And so with that background, I can only, especially in law and, and in your current role now and, to, and even some of the, the other roles uh, that you've had and 
we'll get to COVID probably here a little bit later because if you ha- if you haven't experienced any challenges through COVID, then I mean, where have you been and and where can I get there? You know, so but we'll we'll, we'll come back to that one. Let's let's kind of turn the clock back a little bit. Um, you know, coming up in in your professional career, and even if you wanted to sh- to share, you know, while you were in school um, there at Columbia, what were some of the challenges that you experienced um, during some of those times? Yeah. Um, so, uh, Columbia is uh, a wonderful institution. Of course, it's a very old institution having been founded in 1754. Um, I would say that, um, it's, um, current, uh, incarnation is, um, probably challenging for it as, as well, because it's probably the most diverse it's ever been in its history. Um, the school I attended, the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, draws on an international student body. And uh, we spend a lot of time talking about how to develop different parts of the world, including uh, neighborhoods and communities here in the United States. And I always found it challenging to talk to someone who was from Asia or from South America or from Australia or from Africa even, um, and them having very little context for the African-American experience here in the United States and having to spend um, time either educating them on that experience or um, undoing some of the misinformation they may have um, picked up over the years. Uh, about the African-American experience and how that experience really made it possible for many of them, those who are brown or black, uh, to be able to come to the United States and to an institution like Columbia um, and have the type of positive experiences that they have. So, Joe, Christine, let's talk about a time then where you uh, you encountered a challenge that from the jump may have seemed like, what am I doing? What did I, what did I get myself into? How how am I going to see the light at the end of the tunnel? Maybe Maybe talk about that a little bit. Being a corporate restructuring attorney, every just about every client I had um, was was engaged in a challenge of some sort. Um, there is one case though that stands out as um, particularly difficult because of the uh, players who were involved and um, uh, the the unique internal challenges um, internal to the law firm. Um, that presented themselves. So uh, picture this, a junior partner, I had just made partner and I'm called by uh, who was then the head of my, my practice group to help the managing partner of our, of an office in Texas um, with a case that involved uh, an individual named Nikki Scarfo Jr. Now, if you uh, are, are familiar with mob history in the United States, you may recognize that name as being affiliated with the Philadelphia crime family, um, the Lucchese's, Lucchese's, um, however they pronounced it, Nikki Scarfo Jr.'s father um, at the time and still is uh, serving major <laughs> prison time for um, different mob activity, racketeering, uh, murder. I mean, all this is like a godfather script. Anyway, they took over a company that was publicly held. That means it has shareholders. 
um, the company is called First Plus Financial Group Inc. Back in the 90s, First Plus Financial Group Inc. Uh, was, was very popular. Uh, former Vice President Dan Quayle was on its board. Um, the former football star Dan Marino was a spokesperson to win their um, TV ads and stuff. And somehow, some way, Nicky Scarfo Jr. And, and a group of his cronies had taken over this publicly held company, um, had siphoned off millions of dollars, and eventually um, shareholders started asking questions. And it forced the company into a Chapter 11 and therefore squarely within my area of expertise. The way this partner uh, in Texas got involved is he was a former um, U.S. attorney in Texas and was asked by the U.S. Bankruptcy Court and the U.S. Trustee, which is a division of the Department of Justice, to look into what had happened. And he needed corporate restructuring counsel to guide him through that. He had the criminal investigation stuff done, and I had the criminal, I mean, the corporate restructuring stuff. And here we are, Right. A law firm that doesn't do this type of stuff, dealing with this mob family, with a guy who's really concerned about his reputation in his home state, with this New Yorker woman, African-American coming down to Texas to tell him how to do something. It was um, a, a very <laughs> challenging situation. The stuff of, um, it, this should have been a Seinfeld episode. Um <laughs> But, you know, what made it challenging is you take all of the usual stress and concern that would occur in any corporate restructuring case, and you add on top of that the street brawling style of a mafia family. Right. And add on top of that the bravado of the state of Texas. Right. <laughs> um, and then you throw in little old me. So, um, you know... Knowing uh, the challenges that I would face uh, in terms of just, you know, difference of opinion, the, the um, uncertainty that comes with a, with a seasoned attorney being asked to deal in a space that's not his practice, um, and then the regional issues, right? Anyone from New York going to just about anywhere usually causes some problems. Um, and uh, what I said I'd do first and foremost was listen. Just pause and do a lot of listening. And in that listening, I hope to learn, one, what was concerning my partner, right? He was my client and, and my partner in this law firm. Um, what was concerning him? I thought that I would also learn by listening well what motivated him. And then I could use those two bits of information to figure out what I needed to do to get him to move things along, um, to trust me, to help him move things along. Um, this was, you know, first and foremost, a corporate restructuring matter. Um, and also, uh, it would give me, you know, since everybody comes to a situation with his or her own perspective, it would give me an opportunity to learn something new that I wouldn't necessarily see or hear because that's not my perspective. I'm just, I'm taking all this in. I mean, mob story again, because to your point, this is something that you see in the movies. Uh, yeah. So, so first, I guess I, I do appreciate you sharing that and, and just listening to those challenges. That's, that's amazing. So talk about now then having had those challenges, those particular ones, uh, 
I, I assume there was some level of fear, maybe again, knowing oh, what you're going yeah. up against. How did you, how did you combat that? How did you stay, I guess, optimistic, focused, that yeah. everything was going to work itself out the way it needed to during this challenge? Yeah. And that no one would come to our homes and make us an offer we couldn't refuse. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the first thing I did is I reached out to the FBI. Um, you know, mob, mob stuff, racketeering, et cetera. That's all federal. That means the FBI should be investigating it. And um, I learned rather quickly that these guys who had taken over this company had been, um, had been under surveillance for quite some time. Um, and that the FBI was uh, working up, um, you know, a case to, to indict them and, and all that other stuff. So the first thing I did was, was reach out to them and see, okay, what, what exactly are we dealing with? And what happened, right? This was a publicly traded company. What happened to the board? Are they among us or are they swimming with the fishes? Right, right. Right. Um, so all of those board members were, and as far as I know, uh, remain among us. And if they aren't, it's not due to Nikki uh, Scarfo Jr. Um, so that helped, that helped to allay uh, the mortal fear, right? Okay. And then um, I, uh, you know, because of conflict of interest and other legal mumbo jumbo, the FBI and I, FBI and I could not work together. Right. I couldn't get their stuff. It was all sealed and confidential. Um, and they couldn't necessarily get my stuff because, you know, we didn't want it to look like entrapment or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but we could uh, remain connected. Right. I could inform them about what was happening. All of our stuff was public on a docket. They could pull it and, and take a look at it. Um, but uh, the next thing uh, that I did is. Um, sit down and have a series of uh, primers, if you will, on corporate restructuring law for my partner. So he could get over this idea of, you know, I'm a former U.S. attorney. I do like white collar crime stuff. I don't know what this is. And right. it all sounds, you know, topsy-turvy to me. Corporate restructuring is really, I, I like to call it, or when I practice, I used to call it the love child between litigation and corporate law. So we do a lot of corporate stuff, right? And then we have this semi-litigation type um, stuff that we do because if a case ends up in bankruptcy court, we would be the ones to present it and that's, you know, technically litigation, but not like what a, what a, what a regular litigator would experience. Right. Um, so I educated him. And then what I did is um, I hired, you know, local counsel in Texas, some folks he was familiar with um, and I hired an accountant from Texas. And what that did was by having local folks with whom he was familiar get comfortable with me, it helped him get familiar. You know, um, what is that saying? You can't advertise for yourself. You can't say, I'm, I'm good. I know what I'm doing. You need someone else to say that for you. That's yep. when you get credibility. Um, so uh, to allay that fear, it was educating him. And then building up that credibility with sources that he found um, valuable and trustworthy. And I'm glad you said that too, because for, for those of you that are listening, and I know I've said this again, for those that have heard other episodes of this particular podcast, um, the, this, the information that Joe Christine is relaying right now, 
can be applicable in any field, not just law. You have to build credibility with people that you're working with. You have to learn how to listen and listen well. Uh, you have to learn how to communicate. So um, as, as she continues her story, I just want you to keep those things in mind is that take those, take the context of, of the story that she's saying and, and realize that you can apply it uh, to whatever area uh, you're in. So now, Joe, Christine, I got to ask, you know, as, as you've done those types of things and you're dealing with the stress and um, that comes with any role and, and we can kind of, uh, you know, talk about your, your new role now, um, considering that it's, it's fairly new, what, handful of months now? Is it five months? Three, three and a half, three and a half, half months, four months. Time yeah. doesn't, since, since COVID hit, time doesn't exist to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, maybe talk about, this is where we can kind of intertwine the COVID, you know, things that you've dealt with. Um, maybe talk about in your new role, uh, some of those challenges as they do relate to COVID because we're still, a, you know, roughly a year later um, in the in the thick of, of being home and working remotely and, and those types of things. So maybe transition and talk about your role now um, mm-hmm. and, and some of those things and maybe uh, using some of the, the things that you've learned from past challenges and how mm-hmm. you're applying them into your role today. You know, thanks for that question, Mike. Um, you're absolutely right. We would be remiss if we didn't cover the challenges that we're all facing um, in this COVID pandemic. And, um, you know, I think something that we've learned from, from the millennials that everyone hates, everyone loves to malign is that we all live intersectional uh, identities and lives, right? So I'm a professional and take great pride in that, but I'm also a mother and I'm also a wife. So one of the big challenges that I've faced in COVID is, is mothering two young children uh, during COVID. I'll add to that, mothering two young children during COVID who are now expected to leave the only life they've ever known in New York City and move to Des Moines, where they not only know no one, but they won't know anyone because the pandemic keeps us in our home. Um, and, and I have their two boys. So um, we knew we would be moving. Uh, and the plan that I had laid out for them was, was very structured and it was, um, you know, took in account the challenges that they would face, um, as children being asked to move. Um, but when COVID hit, the plan went out the window. We came, um, three months earlier than we thought we would come. Um, we, because my husband was already here, he had been commuting back and forth between New York and Des Moines. Um, we, their school in New York continued virtually, but the in-person contact ended abruptly um, without warning. And they found themselves here still interacting with their classmates virtually in New York. And many of them had left. They had gone upstate New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Tennessee. They had like spread across the country. Um, but they had no one physically here other than, you know, me and my husband and kids need other kids. I'm fun, but I'm not kid fun. Right. right. I'm like, right. mom, I'm mommy fun. Right. Um, so that's a challenge. And then finding a place to live during a pandemic, like who wants a family of four roaming through their house mm-hmm. and what family of four wants to roam through some stranger's house. Right. Um, during a pandemic. So uh, again, I would say my children and I, we had that trust that we needed, right? They, they had known me since gestation, um, and I had always been there to take care of their needs. 
but um, I had to, to double down on the listening for them. I think as parents, we're very quick to say, oh, it'll be all right. Don't worry. I got this. Or do you trust me or whatever? Um, but kids have, um, they're a blank slate in many ways. And you add to that an, um, um, just incredible imagination. Um, and uh, the innocence of having not gone through any other struggle, right? To say, oh, there's light at the end. They don't know what that means. There's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> my, nine, my nine-year-old is like, what tunnel? I'm not in a tunnel. I'm in the world. It's shut down. It's like, what are right. you talking about? Right. Uh, in terms of uh, my new role, uh, it's odd to take on a leadership role at a new, um, at a new job uh, virtually. So much of uh, building connection with other humans requires in-person contact. Um, my team has been uh, very welcoming, um, very helpful, and quite accommodating. They did all come in for lunch. Uh, during my first week of a socially distant lunch. Um, and we were able to meet each other in person, which I think helped lay the foundation um, for our working relationship going forward. And, you know, something I said to them uh, during that first meeting is that I believe in listening. So there's a theme in this, in this podcast session, huh? Listen, listen, and listen <laughs> some more. Um, you know, being good listeners, um, and another thing uh, that we talked about is the importance of communication. And, and I think that's another thread that goes through my, you know, mafia story, my transitioning my children uh, during a pandemic story, and then this new leadership role story is the, the power of communication and the importance of communicating frequently. Um, when you get to the point where you think people don't want to hear from you anymore, that's when you're communicating enough. If you aren't there yet, if you don't get that again, then you haven't communicated enough. I want them to be sick of hearing the message in, in, in the thesis under which we're working, the plan that we're building out. That way I know we're all on the same page um, and they know that I'm serious about mm-hmm. that, right? About that plan. So now we've talked about uh, all these challenges and, and things like that. Let's, let's, let's flip it a little bit. And, and uh, you know, as we wrap this up, I, I'm appreciative of your time and I know you have other things to do too, so I won't keep you too much longer, but uh, just to wrap this up, you, you deal with all these challenges on a day-to-day basis and we all know there's good stress, I guess it's kind of an oxymoron, <laughs> but there's good yeah. stress and there's, there's bad stress. Um, but how do you take these different things and leave them at the office, especially now, given that we are in a more virtual world and your office is probably a room in your home that's been remodified to become your new office. How do you turn that switch off? What are some of the things that you do um, to separate that at the end, at the quote unquote end of a workday? Yeah. Um, First, there are no electronics in um, the bedroom. So my boys don't have a television in their room. iPads are not allowed in their room. And the same goes for, um, for me and my husband. The bedroom is for peace. 
it's for relaxation, it's for tranquility, it's for, you know, private conversations. For my boys, it's for bedtime stories and cuddles, right? It is not for, um, it's not to be intruded upon by media of any kind. Um, you know, I want the first thing they see in the morning and the last thing they hear at night is is my voice letting them know that they uh, can feel confident that they move in this world with, with my love and my support. Um, and, and the same for, you know, my marriage, right? That we are moving through the world confident in the union that we form. So that's, that's an important part of it. There's no reading in bed. You know, your bedroom is for relaxation. Um, it's the sanctuary. Um, the other way I, I leave things is um, I do a to-do list. And I know this sounds, um, you know, trite. There was a book written called The Checklist Manifesto. And it, and it uh, chronicles a number of studies and um, professions, hospitals, organizations that really uh, transformed the way they operate by the simple task of creating a checklist that people follow. So I do that myself. I have my checklist and I go through that checklist. And before I kind of sign off for the day or move from my designated workspace in the house on to other things, I'll look at that list and I'll say to myself, okay, did I check off all the stuff that will keep me up tonight? And if I didn't, what can I do that, that will make sure that I get some sleep, right? Um, should I reprioritize? Is this really as important as I'm making it out to be? Should I delegate it to someone? Um, and once I've done that, I've gone through that checklist. I've either checked it off, reprioritized. We thought it took another um, took another step towards completing that task, delegated it or whatever. Then I can turn off, pack up, you know, put away and move on feeling good that I'll be able to get some rest that night. And um, that I've moved my initiatives forward. Well, those are those are awesome tips. Again, especially. And what was the one more time too for our listeners? What was the name of that book? Uh, the Checklist Manifesto. Checklist Manifesto. So we all have some reading to do because I've never heard of that, and I know That's I'm always short looking book. for ways. Per, even better, I'm always looking <laughs> for a way to uh, improve myself, and I know our listeners are as well. So. Uh, that will definitely be a, a good book for you guys to check out for those of you uh, listening today. Uh, Joe Christine, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you, you dropped some some great knowledge um, in terms of how you do things. And I think the, again, the examples you gave were, were things that people can relate to other than maybe the gangster, the gangster part of things, but Hey, it's, it's all good. Um, I do it. Like I said, I do appreciate that the tips that you gave, because again, uh, if people take a step back, they'll realize really quickly that they're applicable in any area. And again, that's the purpose of of the Leading in Times of Challenge podcast. So with that, I uh, want to thank you for joining us today and um, you take care. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to the Leading in Times of Challenge podcast produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. To listen to more stories of inspiration, please visit dsmpartnership.com.